Welcome to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? This is Deborah Hamilton. This podcast will seek to define and explain this important question from multiple points of view. We will interview owners, breeders, caregivers, defenders, advocates, champions, and educators. The mission of my podcast is to seek and foster collaborative conversations where every point of view feels heard, acknowledged, and appreciated. I look forward to you joining me on this journey toward a better understanding of each other. It is possible to have an impossible conversation. It starts with listening for common ground first. I am so glad you're here listening in with me. Now let's see what my next guest has to say. Hi, it's Deborah Hamilton, and I'm so glad to have you back here again on the podcast that I'm hosting, Why Do Pets Matter? Today, I have my really incredible friend here, Barbara Gislason of the law offices of Barbara Gislason, and she is an accomplished author, speaker, writer. She does everything because she actually is a pioneer in the world of animal law. She actually developed animal law as a legal area or as one of the pioneers because she just is phenomenal. Also, she is a member of the International Law Society and received an award for biosecurity. So we are so lucky to have her here today to tell us, Barbara, why do pets matter to you? And we're going to ask you that question in a minute, but welcome. Thank you so much for being here. I am so pleased to be here, Deborah. It is my honor to be on your show. And I've listened to quite a few of them uh, before coming on today. And you are really good. Oh, well, thank you. Well, let's hope I'm good today. You know, we, we always strive for better each and every time we do one of these podcasts. And I have to say, I'm so blessed to have so many people downloading them from start to finish. And so it's been really exciting for us. So tell me why pets matter to you. I mean, You've been in the, you started the animal law in the legal world discussion. And now, I don't know how many years later, you are at the, the top of the heap as far as, I mean, you've gotten the award as from the Animal Law Committee of the ABA for being one of the strongest and most wonderful members of our committee, our section. So tell me a little bit about why do pets matter to you and how you got here? Um, I would start out with my having the ordinary story of Cocker Spaniels as a kid and they had puppies and they were mixed breeds and my happiest moment of my childhood is playing with Cocker Spaniel puppies. But, you know, I had a golden retriever in, in grade school and my goal, unlike most little girls, was to grow up and have a dog. <laughs> that was my goal. It was it. But... Yeah. I also had a whole lot of different experiences that I would kind of term aha moments. Um, they included that in grade school, my uh, family would go to a family farm in North Dakota and we did not know that was silent springtime. So the farms were all dead. There, was no, there were no birds, no wildlife, no nothing. And um, years later, I had a really strong premonition to go on a particular trip to China on the Yangtze River, as in, you know, that tap on the shoulder and you, you're going to go. Right. And um, I did. I mean, I, 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 I saw it as destiny and I uh, bought the ticket and I went down the Yangtze River and I'm standing there and I knew it had to do with the animals. And I remember 
the last day on that boat saying kind of why? Why am I here? What did I learn? I don't get it. That kind of thing to myself, to whoever was listening. And it was within two years that I launched Animal Law as a practice area in the state of Minnesota and the American Bar Association. What I had witnessed on the Yangtze River was a silent spring, not unlike the silent spring I had seen in grade school. And so my starting place for that was not wanting the wildlife to disappear. Yeah. And it evolved into something much greater. So I said at the beginning that Barbara is an author, but she's, she's written this phenomenal book on Amazon that you can get, or the ABA if you're an attorney, Pet Law and Custody, Establishing a Worthy and Equitable Jurisprudence for the Evolving Family. Because really, I want to get back to the Yang Z, but you really have expressed in this book the 21st century Um, respect and responsibility people have toward their pets at the very least, but even in the greater world um, of animal law. So I wanted to make sure, and I'll repeat that name again at the end of this, but this pet law and custody book is chock full. It's about eight inches thick. It's phenomenal. I have a copy. Um, And I want everyone to know that this is really the quintessential book to understand probably Barbara's journey from the Yang Z in the Silent Spring um, to where she is today. So tell us a little more about, first of all, explain to us in, in words what Silent Spring means, because I don't know that all my listeners know what you mean when you say Silent Spring. They probably have an inclining that there's not a sound, no birds, no crickets, no mooing of cows or neighing of horses. But tell us a little bit about that. Well, I mean, I, I, in North Dakota, a lot of it was blamed on Monsanto, uh, which is now bare, but they use a lot of pesticides that were fine for the crops, but not any other form of life. And so that kind of you know, pesticide really polluted the rivers in, in this country, in China. Um, when the rivers get polluted, the fish die. The fish did die in the Yangtze River the birds that, you know, I don't know if they were eating fish, but they were dead too, or maybe there was no place for them to land. But um, all kinds of pollution and pesticide kind of together kill all the wildlife. Yeah. And so the springs that we have now- Not not to mention global warming and other things that are going to- Other wonderful little Right, other wonderful little tidbits we have. But the Silent Spring really was the precursor to the investigations that said, oh my God, why is this so quiet? And um, are the animals being affected by this? And by seeing the animals affected, the fish dying, the birds dying, the uh, bugs dying, people were eating those fish before they died sometimes or drinking that water or bathing in that water, or washing that water. So it really affected humans as well. So did it, did it evolve from recognition that humans were being affected and then animals were being affected? Or do you think it started f- with the animals first? For me? Mm-hmm. Yep. The animals. Yeah. And, and I saw footage on Rachel Carson speaking one time And it's funny, there's very few people in your life that you hear speak that you say, you know, like, oh my God, that is really amazing. Um, It was kind of like my heart just connected, you know, as I was listening to her. There, I I don't have any, and there's things that I'm really good at, but there's something that somebody like Rachel has that I wish I had. Yeah. 
and and connecting with everyone to get them to really listen to you about the value of animal law. Tell us how that, so why do pets matter? Not only did you have cocker spaniels, um, a golden retriever, and then took this trip on the Yang but then you, I guess, came back. Maybe it was one before the other, but you came back and really started to introduce animal law, or at least a discussion about that um, at the ABA and at the Minnesota Bar Association. Um, what I didn't appreciate when I launched Animal Law in Minnesota, which for those who don't know, is a farm state, lots of research on animals, um, all of that, was that I didn't know that my starting animal law as a practice area, just like environmental law in Minnesota, would cause people to think I was um, a card-carrying PETA member. And you know, likely to throw blood and on and on, which was kind of the reputation back then. And not so much today, but it certainly was then. So I was treated, I would say somewhat oddly from my perspective. And uh, I was just trying to do um, animal law as a practice area. And anyway, a lot of uh, lawyers from Southern Minnesota were irate about this and you know voted not to start the committee but i i i lit, if, if you know um the book dominion yep. by matthew scully i if you were thinking about a fantasy and science fiction film i invoked that book i held it up and i read the title yep. mercy i don't know the whole title but dominion but then there's something about mercy in it anyway the, the room was very quiet after that, and, and, and it had passed. And then one of the lawyers from Southern Minnesota really, really liked what I was doing. And a year later, when I tried to get it passed as a section, he talked to all the lawyers from Southern Minnesota into supporting it. So it went through to a section. So that was the seventh state in the country that had that. It's a section seven. Seven. Seven, yeah. yeah. It, it's interesting because being a farm state, you would think that um, animal law, as you said, would not be as welcome, but you brought it in in a way that really um, enabled people to just start the conversation. I also made sure that the top lawyers were getting in front of it. So like, if you remember the Exxon Valdez case, yep. with the oil spill in Alaska, of a certain I, got, I got Brian O'Neill from the Fagri firm to be our very first speaker for animal law. So yeah. we attracted every, you know, kind of a who's who audience. Yeah. I'm very good at the PR part. Which is, which is really great. I mean, I, I love you so much because you're not all about, this is what I've done. You're like, oh, wait a minute, meet this person. She's really good. Or meet that person. They're really good. Um, so you bring people together to collaborate, to have a conversation. Um, what I always appreciate about your brilliance and your magnificence is your ability to um, speak in a way that doesn't alienate anyone. I think I am pretty good at that. Because, well, maybe it's because I have a different viewpoint, though. Um, I think some people's viewpoint about animals is kind of founded in an animal rights model. And my view of animals is founded more in a view that they have a soul. And, and, and I, I understand that's a controversial uh, perspective, too. But I've always felt that about other animals, that there was the, the mystery, the significance. 
I remember one time I went down to the Bonobo uh, Center in Des Moines, Iowa, and because I knew uh, one of the primatologists, I was able to hold a three-year-old Bonobo named Tickle, and I watched him search my eyes, um, and the whole idea that there was this big gulf between humans and other animals really, quite frankly, banished them. Right. And, you know, I, so I, I find it very interesting, the concept of a continuum, but some of these great apes, I mean, they, they can outperform Duke, um, college students on math tests. Yeah. Um, we have been what I would call willfully blind about the intellectual capabilities of the animals around us and the emotions of animals around us. And I think we, 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 I mean, if from my point of view, if I'm going to heaven, I want to take my dogs. So I want to meet yeah. them if they've gone before me, for sure. I want them or, to and, or meet them when they cross. So, yeah. um, you know, so I, 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 you know, in my, in my essence, I think there's a spiritual aspect to them that's profound. And I think we just, um, I, I always think that humans are limited who can't see what animals are. I always feel like they're not fully evolved or developed or something. Uh, because anybody who's really spent time uh, in a relationship with an animal learns all kinds of things. Like in one of your earlier podcasts, you said that animals can't tell time. Well, one of my dogs somewhat can. I mean, they both can kind of figure out what a snooze alarm is and that they're going to have to wait another 10 minutes. If they want to go outside, I hold up my 10 fingers and say 10 minutes. Um, one of my cockers is a really bright guy and looks at, a lot in the mirror and, and watches television. And so at, at first he could recognize a dog on television and then he could recognize other animals on television. And then we're watching something underwater and at first he didn't recognize animals and then he did. And then eventually there was a cartoon character on the screen but the dog's ears were black, but it was a dog face. And he recognized that. Yep. He didn't bark at the male of the female, but the cartoon character. So it's like, okay, so there's this whole mind going on here. And it's, it's, it's interesting. And, um, and I, th I think, you know, the, the ravens up in the sky and the, and the octopus, I think these, there's animals, the bee, there's all kinds of animals that are amazing. And I, I think it's kind of strange that we don't want to know it somehow, or if we do know it, we're not going to do anything about it. Yeah, it, it you know, you've hit on so many points. Um, I know my dogs can tell time too, like it's dinner time, it's time to go for a walk, it's time for you to get up. They can absolutely tell time about that. Um, the only time they can't tell is that if you leave for three hours and you come back, or you go out just to get the garbage cans and bring them back into the garage, they give you the same welcome. It doesn't matter, they give you the same welcome. You've been gone a minute and a half or three hours, you get the same welcome. Um, I love that. It, yeah. It, it, yeah, it really makes us feel great. I. I want to go back for a minute because when you said that, you know, to us, you and I both, their essence is spiritual. I think we've seen a huge piece of that become reality over these past three months with COVID, with the shelters being emptied, people taking pets home, cats, dogs, birds, um, to care for them because they really wanted um, to have an animal in their life now that they were home 
And I think they now realize, as you said, the spiritual essence that they give to us. I mean, I often feel, and I know we have shared this with each other, that these pets can really read us and give us what they need, uh, what we need. Mm -hmm. And they're like sponges. They absorb things from us um, that really can sometimes, I think, so this is my quackery, I think it can sometimes make them ill because they will take all the stress and worry that they can from you. And sometimes they'll get pneumonia. Sometimes they'll limp because they just are sucking in all that, you know, energy that you're putting out there. So, you know, you're, you and I both feel that animals um, are, are terrific, but how do you think? And I've also had, I mentioned some uh, regular animals, but I've also had my share of rescue animals. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and German shepherds and, you know, everything. I There probably isn't a dog that I wouldn't be happy living with. And and cats, if I didn't have an allergy, would be welcome too because I grew up with a cat and adored the, um, the Siamese. Do you know what's really interesting? I would love to have cats as well. And I actually have a grandkitty named Jane. Yeah. Um, and uh, my husband's allergic. So I just have to get rid of the husband and then I can get cats, which, you know, on a day-to-day basis, that could happen. Um, I do visit my son often with this cat. And um, you spoke a little bit about how animals bring so much to your life. How do you think, quite frankly, this this new normal is going to pan out? There's a lot of fear in um, the shelter industry that these dogs are going to be dropped off um, once people go back to work, uh, once it's too hard to take care of them. And my thought is, instead of worrying about that, why don't we worry about how to help them keep the dogs in their lives? What can we do as a, as a group to figure out um, how to keep the dogs in the homes to give the people the wonderful experience of living with this dog um, or uh, to make sure that they can function when they go back to work? Well, first of all, I think the shelter should talk to people before the adaption goes through about this. And maybe it's a 10 minute conversation. So they really have a feeling that there's that level of commitment. I also think that when people have animals, there's um, there's neighborhood groups or, or animal groups. And so those people getting involved with other kind of like situated people, I think that kind of reinforces um, good behaviors uh, toward animals. Yeah, I do. I do, too. And in fact, um, there's a program I give on Wednesdays at noontime that talks about making a plan for your pet. And one of the things that I never talked about that I talk about now is that you have to really have a friend nearby, because if I had someone who was in Connecticut during COVID, um, they couldn't come to New York without a 14 day quarantine to get my dogs if I had gotten sick. So what we really need to do is cultivate that um, collaborative culture in our cul-de-sac, on our block, with the people we walk by who say, oh, what beautiful dogs. Well, yeah, hi, how are you? And and say hello. And and I know that what I did when COVID was sort of at the peak here in New York, I put little three by five cards in everybody who had a dog's mailbox. And I said, listen, if something happens to you, this is my number, this is my address, and I'm happy to take care of your pet. Because oh, that's lovely, Deborah. Yeah, I, that's so nice. Because, well, I had an ulterior motive, Barbara, because if something happened to me, I wanted to know that they'd come back and help me. And three of them, there were five of them, and three of them came back and said, thank you so much. And if something happens to you, I'd like to reciprocate. Here's my number. Because this way- I still like it. I still like it. 
Well, yeah. yeah, you know, because I realized that my son's in California, my other's in Florida, my husband's with me, and if I get sick, he might get sick, so what do we do? Um, so now getting back to animal law, I loved what you talked about when you said, you know, a lot of people don't recognize the difference between animal rights and the welfare and the benefits of having animals with you and keeping them healthy and safe and strong. And, and, you know, when we, I love Temple Grandin's, um, approach to, uh, animals because it's all about making them, uh, or not making them, but having them not be stressed. And so I think that's what you meant when you said, when I approached animal law, I wasn't sort of animal rights. I was more about, um, the benefits animals bring and what they feel and how they interpret us and, and how they interpret the world around them. Well, it, it, I'm not exactly where you're describing it. I'd say it's more like, I think if humans were really enlightened and really involved, they would be really um, great at, at um, providing good lives for the animals that live with them. So I think it's a reflection on humans that they're not promoting um, animals having good food, good exercise, people who love them, being in the company of other animals that love them. And on the subject of Temple Grandin, I had an interesting um, experience. Um, when I started Animal Law on the ABA, she was my first speaker that I brought in and she brought down the house. She's the autistic woman who got a PhD and is, is you know, and can, can keep a whole veterinary school um, you know, listening to her without, without using their cell phones. Yeah. Um, I stepped in for Raj Panjani of India in a speech in China, and it was on animal welfare, but, on, but more the agricultural aspect of it. And that's not a subject I had ever talked about before. And I had two weeks to get ready a speech for an audience of 100 uh, people that were significant in China. So I called Temple and uh, asked for help. And I basically adopted a PowerPoint with her permission from her writing. And I spoke to this group pretty much, I thought, channeling her message on animals. And I had like the, the feed of chicken that were mistreated, which had a very strong resonance in China because they eat uh, chicken feed. But it was, um, it was 100 people in China and you could have heard a pin drop. And that really wasn't my voice. It's interesting. I've heard her speak enough that I could really kind of effectively do Temple. So she really does bring so much to the table. She actually um, wrote one of the forwards for my book. And um, I actually watched, yeah. believe it or not, uh, a Super Bowl with her in Colorado because I was teaching at Colorado State University's vet school. And she was there. And I said to her, I want to have dinner. And she goes, Sure, if you're going to watch the football game. So watching a Super yeah. Bowl with Temple Grandin is a real experience, let me tell you, because she calls out those uh, players in a big way. Uh, but she absolutely does talk about. About what the animals are experiencing. And I think that may be a more correct way of the way you feel. Why can't we um, really take stock of what our pets or our agricultural animals are feeling and make sure they're feeling um, safe? Because, I, yeah. Is that she right? She was over at my house one time and we were watching the news and it was a, a, about some kind of chicken atrocity. And she looked at me and she said, why don't they just put video cams in the building? Yeah. So they could, they could, I think yeah, that, that like, turkey isn't was that a, being mean. Isn't, to me. 
Isn't that just obvious? I mean, she, she, I mean, she's very quick and she's the one who figured out if they're mistreating cattle or cows in trucks, how do you figure it out? Well, you stand there when they get off the truck and if they move too much, you got a bad driver and you don't use them anymore. Right. So she's very practical at, at identifying behavioral signs that animals are abused. I know she made that um, that cage that holds them tightly um, on their side. The squeeze and, machine, yeah. Squeeze machine that actually, because it worked on her uh, with yeah. her autism, that it, it actually calmed them down. So when they were branded, they weren't as fighting as much. They weren't being, you know, caught by a rope, dropped to the ground, legs tied together, you know, not that anymore. Um, because she has found, and she's a big advocate of the fact that if animals are stressed, uh, the meat we're eating has a lot of cortisol in it and we could be getting sick. That goes along with, you know, Monsanto and all the um, uh, pesticides it was putting in the water or on the ground that were killing all the good good bugs who kept, you know, flowers and honey and everything else. It, it It's a trickle-down effect. So if we can treat our animals with the love and respect, if we could just treat them with the love and respect that they treat us with, that would be really good, Barbara. Oh, that's a concept. I like right? that. Yeah. yeah, because, you know, here we are, we're, we're three months into shelter in place and almost everyone who has had a pet, you talked about puppies. Um, and so I had puppies March 12th and those oh, puppies, oh. I know, I, I Irish setter puppies, Irish setter puppies. Yep. Yeah. And nice. who knew that not only would those puppies help me survive the um, pandemic and sheltering in place, but I kept posting them to Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter. And so many people said, please don't stop. Thank you so much. Because I think in our, in our heart of hearts, in our good part of our brain, um, we do recognize the incredible value all animals on earth bring to us. And that's why animal law is so important, not so much to shut people down or to throw blood on their fur or all the other things that everyone thought you were going to do when you wanted to start the animal law committee, but rather start the conversation, start the discussion on they're not dumb animals that you can just push around, especially horses. I mean, these are animals that trust us. Cows, cows live a different life than horses, but horses trust us. You know, we've been, we've been their caretakers. We ride them. You know, there's a symbiotic relationship a, a number of times. And then when they go to slaughter, it's, it's like such an enigma. You sit there and you go, how does that actually work? How can you do that? I mean, I, I, I always say it's, it's so much better to just let them go, transition. Well, yeah. And, and kind of along the lines of what you were saying, I think there are different people who have different perspectives. Certainly within the tent of animal law are yep. a large number of, of vegans, and you and I have a million vegan friends. But, mm -hmm. you know, we also have meat-eating friends, and I personally... I'm a meat eater and I don't feel terrific about it, but um, I guess that's where I am in my journey right now. You know, it's interesting you said that because I've gone to a number of vegan, like you have, I'm sure, vegan presentations, and some of them completely make me crazy. And the other ones actually, sort of like when you channeled uh, Temple and everybody was silent in the room, some of them made me really take, a, take stock and say, you know, I think I am going to eat just... Um, vegan one day a week and just think well, I certainly I certainly have changed my diet 
And I've added a lot more vegetables and fruit and really um, reduced dramatically um, animal protein, but uh, that's not the same thing as stopping. No, it isn't. And and I think that we, we likely will proceed there um, as animals become more where we become more aware of animals awareness, which is what you started with at the beginning. Animals are so aware, they are so empathetic um, and they live in the moment. I always say to people, you know, my dogs live in this moment. They don't worry about yesterday, what they did wrong, like we do. Uh, they don't think about tomorrow, where's my next meal coming from? Cause that's me. Um, and when dinner time comes like at your house, you know, the scratching starts, the barking starts, the spinning starts. Um, but they really just live in the moment to see how they can uh, make their life better, but also by doing that, by making our lives better. I am, I, you know, when I wrote my book, I had a, 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 a yellow lab by my side. I mean, I felt like she was a collaborative partner. You know, they they do pass things. When I wrote my book, I had my Irish setters with me um, and they would sit out on the deck of my old house and, and just lay with me. And every once in a while, Jezebel, God rest her soul, she's watching over me. Um, she'd come over and uh, there's a video up um, on YouTube with Jezebel coming over and saying, come on, mom, we got to go now. And I'm sure you've had this at your house. So you'll be sitting at your desk. You've been there for hours. You've lost complete track of time. And the kids come and say, mom, it's time. You got, we feel it. We feel that you have, you need this change in your energy. I totally, I totally get it. Yep. You need your change in this energy. So we've been lucky to have pets all our lives, you and I both. Um, Some people are just getting pets now due to COVID and starting to shelter in place. And I'm hoping that the entire system, instead of being um, aggravated or angry, um, if people need to turn their dogs back in, if they've lost their job and they don't have money or they started their job now and they can't keep it, try to have a conversation. I'm sure you're on board with this too. Try to have a conversation that keeps the pet with the person, if you can, work with them. Um, But if they have to give it back, it's hard enough to give it back. You know, don't make them feel really guilty about it because, you know, they have now taken a dog out of a shelter who may have had a few issues, um, given it three months of family life, which may make it even more adoptable down the road. I don't, I'm not really not in the business of judging other people. Nope. I think they do the best that, well, I want them to do the best they can. It's when they're not trying that I guess I, I get more judgmental. Yeah. I, I, you know, in my world, I, I really don't try to judge people. I try to um, help them find their best next step. And sometimes that does mean giving up the dog. So as we, as we wrap up here, which I never want to do with you, Barbara, because it's so phenomenal to speak with you. Oh, thank you. Um, I want I, I, I want you to come back because we can talk about things. Oh, that's like really nice. Thank you. For years. I mean, because we have so much to talk about within the yeah. cases that you've had and the and the actions that you have moved forward. I want to tantalize the, uh, the um, audience because there's so much that Barbara has done in her life to help animals and better yet to help people understand animals and the reason why she started the animal law movement. Um, she just has to come back. But my, my three things that I'm going to pull out of here is that, you know, you really were moved to do this from the silent spring in North Dakota and on the Yangtze, which, you know, none of us, uh, not a lot of us are in North Dakota, A, and almost <laughs> none of us are on the Yangtze, B, and that those two places sort of moved you to say, wait a minute, where's that sound? 
where's that sound? Because this year, because of COVID, and I'm sure you- I, Oh, I know where you're going. I know where you're going. Okay. Right? This year, because- it's the birds. The birds. The birds- Yeah, it's a dancing to hear their songs now. And the it's, and the chipmunks, they're driving my dog yeah, on the walk because nobody's right. run over because nobody's driving a car. So, but it's like a joyous chorus outside. It's I, really I nice. Walk at five o'clock in the morning, and I walk at sunset. Now it's like eight thirty at night here in New York, um, and the joyous chorus. So, so you started this because of the silent spring, and this spring, by far. 62 years, the best spring ever. A, because the birds were singing with glee. Um, the air was better. Everything was better. But B, I took the time to listen. And that's, I think, what your underlying you know, premises for animal law. Take the time to understand what animals mean to us. And, 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 and again, not pretending there's something different than they are. Yep. I mean, if you're going to do something that's not good, at least own it. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it really is important to recognize them as really spiritual in our lives. They really bring an essence to our lives. Uh, they can read us like a book um, and they provide us with this. I mean, most people in my podcast start with, well, they provide me with unconditional love and they truly do. Although I know that sometimes my dogs have a little bit of condition when I haven't taken them for a while. Oh, yeah. They do sort I of have a, that love. I, I have, have a dog who communicates with well-placed poop. Yep. <laughs> I had a dachshund who had well-placed poop all the time. Um, Especially when I'm about to go on a trip. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, because you have the suitcase out. Yep. Yep. And I think that the last thing is that to live a life with an animal really enhances our time here um, because it really gives us that opportunity um, to share our space with something that is magnificent and has us see things so differently. I mean, just so differently. I don't know if you feel the same, but I think my dogs make me see life incredibly differently. I had a, a German shepherd and I shepherd uh, and I remember watching her and, you know, I'd have, again, I like science fiction and fantasy books. Yeah. Sometimes I'd imagine her as the master and yeah. me as a student. And it, it probably was a returning thought the whole time I had that German shepherd. Yeah. Because they, they really do teach us a great deal. They, they really do. And, and I always say to colleagues of mine who have dogs and then lose dogs, I said, you know, it is the hardest thing in the world to do is to lose a dog. And I, I know you agree with me, but I don't think any of us would give up the adventure we've lived with those dogs in order to avoid that because our lives were so enhanced by having them in our lives. Well... I can't even go there mentally to think about losing a dog. Right? I know. <laughs> I can't my, do it. My no. husband says to me all the time, I don't know how you do it. I said, well, I, I'm good at compartmentalizing and I do a lot of crying when I walk. Um, so I want everyone on this podcast to know this is my dear, dear friend, Barbara Gislason. And she's from Minnesota. She has her own firm, the law firm of Barbara Gislason. And she has an ABA book out there that you have to get your hands on just Look it up on Amazon. It's called Pet Law and Custody. Everything you need to know about Pet Law and Custody. There's a little tiny chapter on mediation in there that I helped her with. So I'm so thrilled. Um, and make sure 
make sure that you get it. It's it's beautiful reading. We're still home. We're still in shelter. So it's a great read. Barbara, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for your contribution to mediation and to this global conversation. Well, you know what? Together, we are going to shift how people see animals and do it in a way that they can really identify with that that spiritual piece, which I thought was perfect that you brought up. So thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Good. And I will come back. Oh, super. Okay. This is Deborah Hamilton, Hamilton Law and Mediation, but also Why Do Pets Matter podcast. Until the next time, remember, pets do matter so often, and we'll see you at our next podcast. You've been listening to the podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? This is Deborah Hamilton. Do you have a great idea or guest or topic that you'd like me to cover? Write me at hamiltonlawandmediation.com or email me at whydopetsmatterpodcast at gmail.com. Until next week, our pets do matter. Thank you for being here with me.